Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Welcome to part two of the Nebraska Antimicrobial Stewardship Summit interviews. If you joined us for the last episode, we interviewed some great speakers and planners for the Antimicrobial Stewardship Summit. We have a few more interviews to share with some experiences and takeaways from the conference. Our first guest for today's podcast is Dr. Renuga Vivekanandan. She's currently the Assistant Professor of Internal Medicine and Associate Program Director of Infectious Diseases Fellowship at CHI Health Creighton University and Bergen Mercy. All right, Dan, where are we today? What is, what is the time now? Two o'clock. Two o seven. Two o seven. Oh yes, I made it to breakout sessions. It's 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 been a uh, there's a lot of smiling people, um, and there were just the cookies and all of that were just delivered, so people are. And they're Friday, and this isn't really work. Maybe that's it, or do you think it's actually the summit? I, you know, I see people coming here. There, people are having a lot of fun. They're yeah, they're seeing so, friends. So that's good. That's good. And uh, Dr. Vivekanandan from Creighton Bergen stopped by to see us now. So that's awesome. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. So we've been through, we're, we're through like more than half of the day. Yes. What has struck you? What's what what's a, a lasting memory so far today? Um, like you all were just talking about meeting people and those connections. I think it's fantastic because we haven't done a lot of this in a long time. So definitely having face-to-face contact and just connecting with the community um, has been really good. And I really enjoyed the talk earlier about um, motivational interviewing for antimicrobial stewardship because uh, I've been doing that for a long time. And just to hear that message and how to partner with the frontline providers to be able to make intervention, that was really good. Yeah, we've actually uh, heard that from everybody that yes. we <laughs> yeah. that, that first uh, first session with Dr. Sinziak yeah. was great. Yes. Well received. Uh, yes. And we had her on actually just a little bit ago. So oh, fantastic. She, yeah, she's she's great. She's yeah. uh, very passionate about uh, uh, stewardship and everything. It's interesting. She's a sociologist. Yes. And, and, uh, so you don't see many of the sociologists, PhD sociologists in the medicine program. Yes. So that's really, really pretty cool. You just got done speaking yourself. Can you give us a little highlights about what you found? Yeah, so in our um, journey at CUMC Bergen, CHI Health, we have struggled a lot with increased number of HAIs in the past 10 years. But I would say about six, seven years ago, we started implementing diagnostic stewardship protocols, tools to be able to help frontline providers, nursing, and just a collaborative model to be able to reduce HAIs and has really worked. And the data we were showing today was from CUMC Bergen, and we were really able to reduce C. diff, CAUDIs, and CLAPSIs by having these tools and collaborative models and doing diagnostic stewardship. And it's been a partnership journey and just having, you know, frontline docs, nurses, infection preventionists, ID physician, but lab, EBS, it's just been a team sport. But now just looking at the data, like five, four, five years later, and just seeing that effect has been really rewarding. Yeah, cool. I mean, one thing that I think is interesting, and our leaders may, yeah. uh, listeners may be interested in what you're 
have to say your your whole system is very diverse. Yes. So I mean, a lot of times we look at this from an academic medical center perspective, and that's what Bergen is. Yes. But you guys range to community hospitals of multiple different sizes and in different states yes. and everything else, and so. Your guys' approach has to be a little different. Ever. Yes. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about how you do things? Definitely. Um, so we're an academic medical center, but we are part of an academic health system. So in, Oma, in Nebraska and Iowa, we have 14 hospitals. But now we're part of the Midwest Division where we have 32 hospitals in North Dakota and Minnesota. So any lessons learned, it's disseminated throughout. And now we are part of Common Spirit Health, which is 21 states and 152 hospitals and across Um uh, we take care of one in five individuals in the U.S. So the best practices that we are coming up with here and being able to disseminate nationwide and have adaptability and impact on our patients have been really exciting. So like, you know, like being able to do something small, having impact, seeing results, and then being able to take it nationally. And then, so it's been fun process. Um, it's been uh, fun to like bring other stakeholders together uh, and seeing patient outcomes, impacts. So, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Are you guys the only academic portion of that entire system? In Common Spirit Health, we have um, multiple other partnerships. So it's Create University, um, uh, Baylor University, uh, Virginia Mason, okay. Morehouse, and many community ACGME programs as well. So four large academic um, institutions plus many community. So community-based training programs. Community-based training do programs. Do they use mostly primary care type things? Or uh, primary care, but um, surprisingly, know they have orthopedics, urology, um, internal medicine, a lot are in place in um, uh, California area. So yes, many different products. Are you able to do some intervention research projects, process improvement projects at yes. all these different institutions? Yes. Yeah, so we have national committees where we're all stakeholders and we come together and we make intervention policies. So it's not one-sided, it's everybody coming together to make decisions. So for Common Spirit, I'm on the Infection Prevention Council. So we make all of us work together to make decisions when it comes to isolation, screening, masking policy, vaccine policy. So there's a lot of committees like that where we have national stakeholders. We will all work together and come up with consensus to be able to disseminate best practice. That's pretty awesome. And in this, this, I mean, it's a long journey. Yes. I mean, this whole process you're describing. Yeah. Uh, and I imagine, you know, throughout the process, there's been pivots and there's been new learnings and readjustments. Yes. Out of the whole thing, what has been either something that you thought was a certainty at yes. the onset and it proved to not be true yeah. or exactly the other way around? What's been the biggest surprise? I think um, for me personally, one of my biggest surprises, teaching is not enough. Um, you know, just teaching um, frontline providers, nursing is not enough to implement best practices. You have to have tools. You have to have uh, points where there's, you have, we're stopping and thinking because you have such a high turnover. People forget what they have learned. So you have to have EMR help as well as other tools that could stop and make you think. And you have to have a collaborative way of teaching and implementing where everybody's communicating back and forth. And they all have, we have multiple stakeholders. The frontline nursing staff is just as important as the physician or APP at that team to be able to make that connection and decision. That's very interesting. Yes. I mean, that's very interesting that it's not just 
the education. Yes. You know, the, the, the tools are, are required. Yes. The tools are so important because I have over the last 11 years, what I've learned is people forget. Uh, and so you have to have tools. Yeah, that's that's fascinating and yeah. so true. I mean, it, it, you have to, education is not a one-time event, yes. either, right? So you have to, to keep doing things and uh, and helping people. Uh, what's, a, what's a focus of what you're doing now in your, in your, your research projects? Uh, there's a lot of research projects. Um, I think one of the big ones that we're working on currently is uh, um, blood contaminations. Um, we've really seen um, significant decrease uh, by using Kirin device, for example, being able to eliminate. Uh, so that's been really important, not only teaching, but now implementing that process across our system and then tracking and being able to publish some of that data. But one of the other publications that we wanna work on is as you see the data from today by implementing all these uh, diagnostic stewardship tools in the last five years, we have significantly reduced the um, HAI numbers. Now being able to share that with others um, everywhere in the community. So we're gonna work on that sharing component. Another big tool that we're using is also external devices like PureWig and um, you know urinary catheter external devices and going away from central lines to using more midlines um, to be uh, you know to be able to do that. So working on those to be able to currently implement and we'll see where that goes and get some results in that area too. Do you have some unique barriers like being, say you're in Nebraska, yes. and you know the Nebraska yeah. culture and everything else, implementing that in North Dakota or Minnesota? Or yeah, I think the unique barrier is that um, um, sometimes uh, as a big system, you come up with like products, for example, right? You're contracting national level to use BARD or, you know, I'm just making it up. So like when you do that, then, you know, other systems have different practices, different products that they have been using. So just coming to consensus, like, you know, sometimes it might not be our products here is the best. We have to use some other products from a different system, which is, you know, cost effective and just as good for the patient. So I think just being at the table with open-minded and being able to willing to understand and being a good stakeholder. So it's, it's a growth journey and we have been in this growth journey for 11 years. So we have become very good at it, <laughs> you know, learning and what's best for patients, hospital and the system. And then as far as stewardship goes, yeah. why we're here today. Yeah. Um, you guys have a specific stewardship pharmacist that are local in the, all those places, yeah. or do you use more tele stewardship? Uh, thank you for asking. Um, so in, when it became mandatory in 2017, we realized we don't have, four, for example, in Nebraska, I have 14 hospitals, but we don't have 14 ID docs. We don't have 14 ASB trained ID pharmacists. So how do we, so we pivoted to telestewardship, remote stewardship. And because we had the same EMR technology, and we implemented in 2017. And I think we were some of the earlier adapters to that technology doing remote stewardship. And we were able to immediately within the first year or 12 months show um, overall our drug expenditure for Nebraska, Iowa's $8 million in antimicrobial, antimicrobials. In the first 12 months, we reduced that cost by $1.5 million. So it paid for the program. And that was just a small um, data point that we analyzed and that we were able to show multiple 
multiple other data points. So now I'm in the process of, of recruiting physician and ID pharmacist, and we're expanding the remote stewardship to North Dakota and Minnesota. So now we'll encompass about 32 hospitals going from 14 to 32. So we're in the process of uh, disseminating that practice starting in July. And will that be out of Omaha? So yes. Uh, I will, um, we will have ID physician in Omaha who will be helping um, uh North Dakota, Minnesota, as well as we have an ID pharmacist who's uh, from Minnesota who will work with the physician here. So we have a really unique model, but yes. Now, just from a, across state lines, yeah. do the physicians have to get credentialed yes. in those yes. states? Okay. Yeah. So they have uh, credentialing, licensing. Um, There's uh, a little barrier there, yes. which is an insurmountable. But yes. it's, it's, yeah. it's amazing. I don't think people realize how difficult it is to just practice across state lines. Yes. Yeah. You'd think you could practice your license in yeah. the U.S., you're bordered in the U.S., but you still can only practice in the states yeah. you're licensed. I think it'll be one of my hopes in the future is antimicrobial stewardship we will be able to do across states because I do think it's more educational than you're not seeing patients. It's provider to provider education. So I hope we move towards that in the future. But for now, we do all our physicians are um, licensed, credentialed in every state, every hospital that they practice. Yeah, that would make more sense. Yes. But uh, no, we do lots of things to fix. So do you do you anticipate as part of the plan then as this rolls out yeah. to other geographies, other yeah. states and so on and so forth? Um, and then one you're I'm surely you're measuring what the impact is yes. throughout those. Yes. We measure everything we do because it's important to know where you are, you're making an impact. So we measure our interventions, we measure our patient outcomes depending on the disease processes. We measure like antimicrobial use. We report data to NHSN for like um you know antimicrobial microbial use for each hospital. Um, so a lot of, and it's, uh, we're held responsible for the measurement from our leadership too, because, you know, they're investing, it's patient safety. So we do measure data, um, but to be able to be successful in a remote stewardship model, it's really important to um, build relationships. So when I started and my team started um, antimicrobial research in Nebraska and Iowa, um, we travel. We travel every year and it's just going meeting physicians in each of the hospital, APPs, you know, frontline pharmacists, nursing, just having the face and knowing that you're there to help, you're an extra resource, you're a true partner, and you're not somebody who's policing. So just build. And so any, I think success to our program has been building that relationship. So it's expectation going forward, we'll continue to do that and build relationship and visit our sites and continue to do that. Yeah. I mean, and the same principles hold true for ICAP and ASAP, yes. Yes. building relationships and building the trust yes. and knowing that we're non-regulatory and exactly. just trying to help exactly and you also don't want to have this idea of oh you're coming from an academic center or oh, you're omaha centric you know we have a lot of hospitals in our rural communities and you know i am there as a true partner to help them um is really important yeah. Yeah. well awesome well we wish you the best of luck well thank you continue to move forward it sounds like you guys have got a lot on your plate yeah thank you very much it's been exciting yeah thanks for joining us yeah thank, thank you, you. Our next interview is with Kate Tyner, RN infection preventionist and supervisor at Nebraska ICAP. All right, so um, yeah, we had somebody come up and join us at our table today. That's great. It's been a busy morning. Yes. It's been a busy morning. We see a lot of smiling faces walking through the hallway. 
Yeah, a couple of good talks going on now. Kate Tyner came over and joined us. Tell us about yourself, Kate. Hey, guys. I'm Kate Tyner. I've been on the podcast before. I'm uh, the Infection Prevention Supervisor here at Nebraska ICAP, and I have been one of the leaders on the planning committee. Now, this is the fourth year. So I have a long history with the Antimicrobial Stewardship Summit. Awesome. So then we can get some behind the scenes uh, keys here to what you guys are looking for and, and, and trying to develop this so that we can teach people the importance of stewardship. Okay. I think in the first couple of years, guys, the, um, the goal was more um, just to tell people about antimicrobial stewardship and to like build some excitement and tell people about what the team was able to do. But now that we've, I think we've got a lot of teams working across the state, both in acute care hospitals and long-term care doing stewardship. Now we're really kind of refining and bringing people the new information about stewardship and helping them with like their next steps. So it's been an iterative, you know, we've changed the process over the last couple of years to make it something that's worthwhile for people to repeat shop every single year. That sounds awesome. It looks like you have a, a great uh, collection of speakers this year, mm -hmm. and not even all from Nebraska. So how right. do you find these people? So we're lucky in Nebraska. Dr. Van Schoenefeld and Dr. Ashraf are actually like national leaders in the acute care world and the long-term care world on antimicrobial stewardship. I think we're spoiled. We don't know how good we have it in our own backyard. Um, so they actually have a lot of colleagues um, across the country that they um, often go and speak at other conferences and they see other speakers at those conferences or they meet people who have exciting ideas and they say, hey, this would be a great um, person to come, as well as sometimes we invite speakers specifically to help us with challenges that we identify in the state. So earlier I noticed uh, that we do have one individual from CDC. Yes. And her specialization is in long-term care. Can you tell us a little bit about what you expect to hear from her later today? Okay, great question, Dan. So in Nebraska, we're struggling with how and when to implement enhanced barrier precautions. Yeah. It's a concept that's new in the isolation and infection control world. And so particularly that's a long-term care focused topic. And so we we use kind of like, we think generally at the conference, since we're funded through CDC funds, we usually ask at least one CDC person to come and help us support the conference. They have the most, you know, new data. They have lots of input on like the new things that are coming down the pipeline. This year, we used kind of our CDC resource um, carefully in that we said, this is a topic that we know infection preventionists in the state are interested in. And so we asked Dr. Jacobs particularly because we know that this is something that's exciting and a little bit nerve wracking for people in long-term care. You know, I, I did speak with her for a few moments and she was complimentary toward the state of Nebraska and uh, some of the services that ICAP has provided. Mm -hmm. uh, and she was uh, very interested in meeting some of the folks here at today's conference. I'm, ha I'm really happy to hear that. It's she, every person that we have met from the CDC, you can tell why they've been given those kind of plum jobs. Not only are they really smart clinicians, but I think they have kind of that like magical emotional intelligence that they know how to talk to people about what's going on in this world. Well, and there's no doubt you, um, you can tell that, uh, that there's a lot of passion 
um, exactly. you know, this just isn't a job for mm -hmm. uh, these individuals. That this is their passion. Mm -hmm. Busy time much. here. Busy time Thank here. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. So, um, how is attendance going this year compared to prior years? We're out of the pandemic for the most part now. So. Out of the dark secret, Dr. Starlin. So, um, I remember the first time we did the summit, Dr. Ashraf, he said our goal would be 275 people. And I was like, we are not going to get there. That is a big goal, Dr. Ashraf. And um, we hit his kind of lofty goals every single year. Last year, kind of at the close of the pandemic, we had actually our most widely attended summit ever. We had over 300 attendees last year, but this year we have more like around 200 attendees. And what I would attribute that to is our last summit because of the timing of the COVID waves was only 10 months ago. And I worry that some facilities, maybe they don't, aren't able to come to the conference twice on the same fiscal year. That's kind of what I'm worried about. But part of the message is that coming to successive conferences, you will hear new information. Absolutely. And that's when we've been um, on webinars, uh, particularly on our email messaging to people to recruit for the summit. It is not like a, an educational course that's meant to be one time. It's meant to be the, the newest updates, the most exciting things, um, how to make your stewardship job better. So, um, yes, we want people to attend every year. And can you tell us a little bit about the planning of the conference? So, you know, as Dr. Starlin had just referenced, it isn't the same topics each year. How do you get the ideas? Who, who gives you the inspiration as to what we want to cover in future conferences? Great question, Dan. So um, there's a variety of reasons. We pulled together a planning committee, and the planning committee is really meant to represent all the different types of healthcare in Nebraska and some of our strategic partners. And we ask those folks kind of what problems are they seeing, and maybe we'll do presentations specifically meant to address those problems. Um, what are people's interests? Like we really want infection preventionists to be here, and that's one of the reasons we wanted to have the enhanced barrier precautions talk. Um, we also look at what are some trends in the state with our data and what our problems are. For example, we've heard from attendees that they're tired of hearing about treatment of asymptomatic bacteria. They, they're like, we've heard that over and over again. But like Dr. Van Schoenefeld says, our data still shows that's a big problem. So we can take some of the heat off of that, but we still have to have some of that input at the conference. Now, is this conference, is it all heavy on things that relate specifically to that, or do you focus some on leadership abilities? Because a lot of the attendees, I assume, are leaders in their local communities and their facilities, or is that something that maybe would be a consideration for the future? That's, you mentioned emotional intelligence when you were talking about the CDC, and it's mm -hmm. something that you can learn. You right. can learn leadership, and a lot of these um, they're having to have difficult discussions you know, with people mm -hmm. that maybe don't agree with them or maybe don't agree with the whole stewardship concept. Right. So I think some leadership training would be great for people. I think that's a fantastic idea. Dr. Sterling, you might've just bought yourself a job on the planning committee for next year. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, it's something I think particularly we overlook it for infection preventionists, how much they need that support. Um, we've that's, I think I've tried to put that into the, the planning committee's minds a couple of times, but it's also looking for somebody who can do that kind of talk. Um, this year, I think we meant to have Dr. Simchek from, she's now at Utah. She just did what our kind of um, plenary main headlining presentation this morning. We meant to have her come before COVID and then COVID happened and she couldn't. It's one of the 
presentations I've been most excited about because she talks about the sociological kind of facets of antimicrobial stewardship. And I think this was one of the best presentations we've ever had about what the communication and the context should be. It was really satisfying to see. So I hope that people like it as much as I did. And if they didn't get to hear it, that they tune in when we put it up on YouTube because it was a great presentation. And I know that uh, we have uh, individuals traveling from across the state. I uh, just spoke with um, one infection preventionist. She, mm -hmm. she drove six hours to be here today. Mm -hmm. So kudos to her and her organization for supporting her. Yeah. Um, outside, is it mostly 90% I mean, Nebraskans at the conference? We'll have to look at that. I think we can look at the registration information to find that out. Because we're funded in Nebraska, we market heavy in Nebraska. And so I think we're definitely, I'd say 89, 90% Nebraska. But my sense is we get a little bit of a regional draw from our Iowa and Kansas neighbors, especially those teams like the HAI teams that we work with a lot. I think we have some of them here today. So it's, it's not exclusive to Nebraskans. Anyone can attend. Yep. It's just that's we're going to get the most attendance because of geography and because of, well, promotion and marketing. Exactly, exactly. Do you get a sense for role of the attendees as well, whether they're infection practitioners, nurses, pharmacists, medical directors? So that's a great question. Um, we've learned over time that that's a really important thing to put on our evaluations because um, we want to continue to bring content for the people who want to be here. And so it helps us to know if there's a strong IP contingent, we want to have presentations just for them. Well, thanks, Kate, for joining us. It's great to talk to you. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Our next guest is Lacey Pavlovsky, RN Infection Preventionist for the HAI-AR Nebraska DHHS program and Nebraska ICAP. So we, we there's another breakout, and we saw Lacey Pavlovsky walking through, uh, and so we grabbed her. Lacey, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Dan? I'm good. I'm good. So how has the morning gone for you so far? Really good, I think. It's been an interesting um, couple of presentations. I really enjoyed the first one. Were you guys able to listen to the first one? Yeah, I was in on the first one. That was very interesting. Uh, yeah. I liked the, uh, the sociological impact of stewardship and approaching people and, and you know, the getting the comments from people on the other side is interesting and how they're receiving the, the stewardship advice and, and how that's delivered makes how that much, how much of an impact that makes is, it was very interesting. Yeah. I can think of several scenarios, like even in my own infection prevention experience where like you have to approach somebody who doesn't want your advice and it's difficult. Like I can remember one time I had a patient who they were ruling out tuberculosis and um, the provider did not want to put that patient in isolation because they were like, well, we're ordering all these tests, you know, and we're doing all the diagnostics and ordering the sputums. But I just think it's latent TB, but we're doing this just in case, you know, it's like, well, then if you, yes, if you suspect it at all, they should be put in airborne precautions. And this was before COVID where people did not, I mean, they don't already don't like wearing N95s and airborne protection, but it was like really taboo back then. Um, but yeah, it's, those are difficult conversations. Do you have to do those frequently having those 
Yeah, we do. I mean, okay. certainly during the pandemic, uh, we did. You know, I do a lot more employee health than I do infection prevention now, but uh, still do uh, you know a lot of crossover between those uh, things. And so, yeah, and uh, you know, one thing that I think is really pointed out in that talk was having the emotional intelligence of how to approach everybody because you can't have a one-size-fits-all approach to everybody right. and you have to be able to gauge the, the situation you know and, and understand you know the best uh, approach and the best time to uh, address these situations and I think it's something that can be learned and I think we just need to do a better job of educating people on that we actually talked to Kate about this just a little bit ago well hey that sounds yeah yeah so tell us about yourself what's your role Oh, yeah. I um, have a dual role. I'm kind of like some other people here at the conference um, where I work with the Nebraska ICAP team um, as an infection preventionist. And I also am working with the DHHS HAI AR team um, as the state infection preventionist, where I also am the NHSN coordination lead. So like a lot of the data that was in Dr. Ashraf's talk today, I provided being the NHSN um, coordination lead for the state so um and what was it what is the hai data showing us as far as you know things like cre and candoris and things like that just be interested for our listeners to maybe hear yeah. what efforts are going on in the state and, and what you guys have found so far yeah i almost wish i had his slides with me but the um thing most mostly like that I, that we've noticed pulling the data for the last couple of years is we were able to actually find some data that showed uh, the percentage of HAIs in NHSN, they were just looking at CAUTIs, CLABSIs, and SSIs that were caused by CRE in general, not carbapenemase producing, but just um, normal CRE. And it's jumped from like the one to 2% to about 6% of our SSI, our, like SSIs, CAUTIs, and CLABSIs are caused by CREs. And you can see that even correlates with the rest of the state and our increase in the amount of cases of CRE in general, which is very concerning um, for future years and resistance. And um, we need to save the antibiotics so we can save those types of, you know, um, to treat those kinds of organisms. You probably know way more about that than I do, but. <laughs> well, it's very interesting because it does impact, you know, based on the numbers, what your empiric recommendations would be. And we do know that stewardship efforts to limit antibiotic usage will hopefully help keep those numbers as low as possible or drive them down to, to uh, uh, you know, maybe nothing would be the goal, but whether we get there is, you know, probably, uh, that, that's probably a kind of, kind of uh, situation. But obviously organisms develop resistance when they have selective pressure, right? So the less that we expose them to antibiotics, then the less desire that they have to become these multiple resistant organisms. Right, yeah. So I think that's that's the key. Um, what about Canada Oris? Did he have anything comment uh, on that? We haven't seen any cases in Nebraska. Um, only one, actually, and that was from a his someone who had a history of tra traveling um, to receive care um, in a foreign country. But it's got it's probably here we just can't see it so i think the biggest update is that we're working on doing wastewater surveillance testing which will um cover for seoris and some of the other carbapenemase producers i think right now we're going to target um a kpc producing cre and a ndm producing cre um, just to see what the levels are um that would stem and dr ashraf actually talked about this in the q a portion 
if we find Canadoris in the wastewater, we'll be able to have a better argument for doing some sort of admission screening for patients. Um, if it's just in one region, say we find it in like Lancaster County or Douglas County when we're doing that, we can in those areas say, okay, based on this risk assessment, we know it's here. Be beneficial to look at doing more screening processes for at least for high risk populations. Um, like transplant patients, immunocompromised patients, just to see LTACs, um, long-term acute care hospitals are extremely high risk for these multidrug resistant organisms spread very, very quickly in those populations. So definitely would be able to target right now. We don't have, most facilities don't do any type of admission screening with very few exceptions. There are some exceptions, but yeah, it's, it's going to be, and interesting to see if we find anything once we start doing um, that kind of testing. Yeah, the wastewater surveillance is is very interesting and intriguing going forward. And you can you could test for basically anything you wanted to look for as yeah. long as you've got a specific target and gene that you can uh, look for. You know, just thinking back to when they had the cases of polio in New York, you know, they were looking at wastewater and seeing the the rise there. So it, it really has a lot of. Uh, uh, future, I think, in looking at the population at large. And then, as you said, if you start to notice it in a certain area, you can try to zero in to see where you're at, to see where your problem might be and focus yep. your efforts there. Um, you know, obviously we've used it in COVID as well. And, you know, it's been really interesting to see how the peaks in the wastewater have preceded peaks in cases and people. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think that'll be so interesting seeing like the comparison on how it, if it correlates the same way, like COVID has. Mm -hmm. I'm looking for, I think this was to start in the next couple months if we get the funding for it. So, right. Are you speaking today? No, thank goodness. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think you'd be great. Yeah. No, not this year, maybe next year. So, so if you look at the, the conference attendees, you know, some of the folks that are here I do, I do. and uh, I mean, is it, you see them once a year, some of them, some of them even yeah, less often. Yeah, yeah. it's nice to, to catch up. It is. It's nice to have the opportunity to network and see people, especially those who live further away. Like I've seen several of my central district health department friends. Like I haven't got to see them. I only get to see them like once or twice a year. It's a really nice opportunity for a whole bunch of different disciplines and areas of healthcare to get together for one common goal. Um, there's, I know there's pharmacists here, there's nurses, Masters, uh, people who have public health degrees, you know, state health departments, local health departments, hospitals, clinics. I mean, it's it's a great variety of people. So yeah, there's so much power to being able to meet in person again uh, you know, after the pandemic and, and everything. I think people with ICAP and ASAP and the state and everything, everybody knows their voice and they've seen them on Zoom, you know, for the last few years. But to actually be there in person and have that personal connection, I don't think anything. Uh, beats that and the and the the mm -hmm. uh, one thing that I think is great about working in this state is just the the teamwork and the uh, desire to work together for uh, for benefit of everybody is 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 pretty impressive. Yeah, definitely. Great synergy. Completely agree. Well, thanks for joining us. Yes, Enjoy thank the you guys. Our last speaker for this episode is Dr. Julie Sismic. She is a sociologist and associate professor at University of Utah School of Medicine. She's also co-director of the Utah Quality Advancement Laboratory, or UQAL. 
just walking out there at the end of lunch and we run into Julie Simzik, who's one of our speakers today. So welcome. Hi, thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, we're glad that you're here. I was listening to your talk earlier and uh, thought we were really glad you stopped by to, to say, you know, why are you here in Nebraska? Where did you come from? <laughs> well, why am I here in Nebraska? Um, I'm here in Nebraska because I am passionate about the sociologic dimensions of infection prevention and antimicrobial stewardship and was here to talk about that specific topic um, and some of my research that I'm currently doing on communication and antibiotic stewardship and where I came from, um, the University of Utah uh, School of Medicine in Salt Lake City. So Awesome. And so what's your background? What yeah. So my background is, so I um, got my PhD in sociology um, and took a little bit of a strange path after that. Um, I ended up doing a postdoctoral fellowship at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia in the Division of Infectious Diseases because all of my research um, was really on patient safety and quality. And I happened to stumble in to infection prevention um, and antimicrobial prescribing as real interesting patient safety challenges that have a sociologic dimension to them. Um, and so I did my postdoc in infectious diseases, decided I did not want to be a sociology professor, that I wanted to work in academic medicine. And then I got on faculty at the University of Pennsylvania. And then just three months ago, moved to the University of Utah, and I'm in the Division of Epidemiology there and do a lot of research um, with colleagues in infectious diseases. So yeah, that's my path. Wow. Yeah, it's a weird, it's a little bit of a weird path, but I mean, but like what I talked about today was just the, the fact of the matter that like people who are doing this work where you're, you're trying to change behavior ultimately. And we know as social scientists that behavior is not just sort of shaped by what people know to be the right or the wrong thing. It's not just about education. It's about people caring about the issue. It's about them paying attention to it. It's about them believing that there's something in it for them. And that is where people doing the hard work of infection prevention and stewardship need to learn how to be influential and persuasive and and that communication is a major way that they do that so yeah i think at the root of it people don't like change it's not comfortable oh it's right? very uncomfortable yeah absolutely absolutely and you know and i think we know that in you know like our own personal lives and you know we can see other areas like education or other places where it's like oh yeah that's clearly part of it but in medicine and healthcare it can sometimes be easy to forget that it's like people working together on sick people and that that dimension, the emotions and the sort of social dynamics, we need to pay attention to it just as much as we do the, the latest updates in diagnostic testing or what are, what's going on with the, the bugs and the drugs, you know, it's like the people element too. So, yeah, yeah. I thought it was interesting. Some of your comments, because the people that you're trying to enact change in are frequently, they're highly trained, oh. highly intelligent, very good at their field. Um, but you're still, and you're essentially telling them that maybe they could do something better, which is yes. well received. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's advice that they have not requested. <laughs> so it's unsolicited advice. And I think that, you know, and it's not only that they're highly trained and, and sort of know what they're doing. They also, you know, may have a different vantage point or thing that they're concerned about. Like right, a lot of times we in the sort of healthcare epidemiology world care about populations. We care about the impact of, you know, like the drug resistance developing or, or more epidemic type situations. And oftentimes like critical care doc is taking care of a, is a very sick patient that's in front of them. And they're just laser focused on that patient. They don't really 
care too much about that microbial ether that, you know, we are very interested in. And so, um, you know, I, I like to always say too, that we all, maybe you come to the table wanting the same thing, but you look, you're seeing it from a different angle. And so getting that alignment is really critical. Yeah, so it's good for the masses. It was good for the individual. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, you're looking at a perspective about things and, the perspective that I have is everybody that we've spoken to so far have, were raving about the presentation oh, because it you. was so interesting yeah, and yeah. just a different angle on, Ex- on some things that they don't always think about. Yeah, no. And, and that makes me, that's what I, to me, that's a success because again, like I'm, I'm very odd. I'm a sociologist in a medical school. There are not very many of us. Um, and, you know, so it is a weird perspective, but it's one that when people say, oh yeah, you know, and multiple people came up to me, it's like, you know, I took some things away and I think I'm going to like approach this one issue that I have with a very difficult colleague in a different way. And that to me is a success to me like I've achieved my goal which is like helping people think differently about what they do every day and also too having a little bit more courage to go to those uncomfortable interactions because one of the things I've learned in my work is that you know you have a you have a prickly interaction with someone with a surgeon or an oncologist and you're like well they don't like me I don't like them I don't want to engage with them anymore and sometimes you close the book on a conversation that might be uncomfortable but if you go at it a little bit more and you come up with creative ways to engage you actually can have a major breakthrough and actually influence a whole group of patients that your message might not have been getting to. So, so too, if this gives anybody a sense of like courage or um, a no- acknowledgement that this is not easy, then, and they take that and have those difficult conversations, that's a success in my book. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of what you talked about focuses in on uh, some of the concepts of leadership and developing leadership skills. You know, if you go back, you know, more than 20 years ago, we used to think leadership was kind of innate. People are born leaders and everything else. But now we know you can actually learn those behaviors. Yes. And so the more we talk about them and go through those scenarios and 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 we can actually reach more people that way. Absolutely. And, and I 100% agree with this idea that like being born with, I mean, some people maybe are just naturally more sociable, but like anybody, even if you think you're an introvert or you're shy, like you can come up with communication strategies that work for you. Um, And so it's not the kind of thing where it's like, oh, that person is a great communicator and I could never be that. Like everybody has strengths. Um, And I also think, you know, we focus so much in our training to become these different professions on getting the knowledge we need, really knowing the right thing to do, knowing the evidence, knowing the techniques. We study that. But then the human element, oftentimes you don't study systematically, you just learn it by doing, by like jumping in the deep end and and having those interactions or having mentors on your team. And so the other thing too, is just to acknowledge that this is another entire set of continuing, you know, continuing education is not just like, do you know the updated, you know, antibiotics or what the new latest diagnostic testing is? It's like, what are people saying about how to engage? So especially now in the post-COVID era where everybody's burnt out and fried to a crisp and (laughs) not really feeling great about interacting. So yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
And so you just had a big change yourself. It sounds I like did positions and you change, you move speed, <laughs> time zones, all yeah. things that are probably high up on a stress scale. <laughs> what, um, what drew you to Utah? What was the, yeah. So I, I um, was really drawn there um, by colleagues at the university of Utah school of medicine. So there is just an incredible uh, antimicrobial stewardship community from um, infectious disease physicians, pharmacists, hospital medicine physicians, nurses, and they are really doing a lot of very exciting work and stewardship and had been having conversations with me for a while about like, we really want a social scientist who does this to be a part of our group. And so that was, it was really what led me out there is just a recognition of the value of what I did. And then I went out there a few times to visit and I was just completely smitten with the mountains. It, it is so gorgeous. I mean, I still want, I don't, I, I keep asking my colleagues who have lived there for a while. Will I ever get to the point where I walk out of my house and don't go, wow, looking up at the mountains because it's really a, a physically beautiful place. And, and it's just the pace of life. I was in Philadelphia, which is a wonderful city, but it's a big, busy city. And it's, you know, there's a lot of things about that that can be stressful. And so I'm kind of enjoying the, the chiller pace for sure. <laughs> yeah. And the scope of what you're doing, I imagine has changed tremendously. I mean, obviously in Philadelphia and chop or yep. whatever, I mean, you're, I mean, you're in Philadelphia and there's numerous medical places, yep. facilities in the, the, you know, the city and the state and the region. I mean, lots yeah. of people in yeah. Utah, you're taking care of a state and a region. I mean, so, so the scope is way different. Absolutely. And that's an excellent point because one of the things I'm very excited about, and I have colleagues who are very committed to this, um, and I didn't really have this as much in Philly, even though Pennsylvania is a big state with a ton of healthcare facilities, but in Utah and the surrounding states, there's a huge amount of rural hospitals and critical access hospitals that have far fewer resources because a lot of our stewardship Fancy stewardship interventions are made at ac large academic medical centers that have a ton of resources and, you know, a culture that's sort of more open maybe to these sorts of things. But for me, one of the big strengths of Utah is that regional sort of reach and working with Intermountain Health as well to like reach all of those facilities across the the region really that are, you know, very small, but are still committed. So in my first month of being at Utah, I took a road trip um, about five hours south of Salt Lake City to Blanding, Utah, to a hospital, Blue Mountain Hospital. It has five physicians total on staff. Mm -hmm. And we met with their QI person who wears about 50 hats and is doing trying to do stewardship. And we met with all of them and like they don't have a ton of resources. They kind of are like Swiss army knives, all of them doing 8 million things, but they are being, they're able to like start to bring stewardship into what they do within the scope of what they can do because, you know, they're really committed to it and, and they don't have a ton of resources, but they're able to, to do small things. And, and that's very exciting to see. And so how do we as stewardship researchers take, you know, develop things that can be used by hospitals like that and not just places with, you know, a team of like 10 stewards. <laughs> yeah. And when I think of Utah and, and what they've done there, I, I, you know, they really leverage technology, I think. So they use a lot of telehealth. Absolutely. They're, they're kind of innovators on that. We're doing some of that in our state here. You know, obviously everybody's had to do it with Zoom and everything. Like yeah, that. yeah, yeah. But in terms of the reach of what you can do, because I mean, Utah's not that much unlike Nebraska, mm -hmm. where you have kind of one yep. large urban center yep. and, then... and then a whole bunch of other places mm -hmm. that you have to reach and, mm -hmm. and, and, to provide care for so mm -hmm. leveraging that technology and the skills that maybe you can have 
and a lot of people in an urban center to reach everybody else's. Yeah. Definitely, I think we need to uh, grow this in the future. I'm a little worried after the pandemic withdrawal and everything that some of that may pull back. I really mm-hmm. hope that it doesn't. Yeah. So we'll have to see how that goes. No, I think it's about learning how to use that kind of virtual thing smartly. You know, I, I do, I do think that it's important to do have that face-to-face interaction wherever you can, but recognizing that, you, you know, can't do it you can't, do, no, I mean, you cannot. The, the West end of our state is what about seven, eight hours. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. Just no. drive out there no. and meet with somebody no. every day. No, no. no. Utah is pretty similar. So, yeah. Yeah, you got to have planned and purposeful trips. So, yeah. Great. Excellent. Great. Well, yeah. So, um, anything, uh, I know you're not a medical person, but anything on the agenda today that you've kind of paid attention to that caught your eye? Yeah. Well, I really loved um, Dr. Langford's talk about the sort of COVID's impact on antimicrobial prescribing and resistance. And I'm I'm just very interested in, um, you know, we you saw sort of, what he showed about outpatient antibiotic use um, during the pandemic and sort of how like it actually in the United States, it de- decreased because a people were not out and mingling and getting ARIs, but then also they were not wanting to go into the healthcare you know, system if they didn't have to. And so I'm kind of curious about sort of whether the public, so I also do research on outpatient antibiotic stewardship and a big barrier there is patient's wanting antibiotics, even though they're not needed. Um, And I'm so curious from the public perspective, whether all this talk about viruses and, you know, viral infection, if that has changed the public's attitude at all about like viral illness and, and, you know, the messaging of you have a virus, antibiotics won't do anything for that, which sometimes is falls on deaf ears, like if that will have sort of made any change. Um, So that that was something that I'm in, I think we're still kind of all is reeling from the pandemic and it will be a lot of years of research to sort of see how attitudes might've changed. But that one was very interesting to me. That's interesting. And and are you interested or are you going to research the perspective of or attitudes towards inoculations and Uh, vaccinations and how there seems to be, well, there's not seem how there there is a resistance to some of that and how, if that plays a role in uh, treatments as well. Absolutely. No, I mean, I think um, the immunization issue is, is and there's actually quite a large body of social science research on vaccine hesitancy and resistance. And, you know, even before COVID, but then during COVID, like it's such a big social and cultural issue, which in, I think it can be very distressing to folks in the scientific community who are like, we've made this amazing technology, it's saving lives. And now you've like painted this as this conspiracy theory or evil thing. But I would say taking some of the elements of what I talked about and sort of people who come out and are like, you're just like, what are you thinking? But really trying to understand what it is that they are thinking, how they think about vaccines and what they symbolize. And, you know, there may be people who have sort of bought into the misinformation and are like very conspiracy minded. And then there may be people who are just afraid and don't understand. Like, I remember when I went to get a booster um, during the pandemic and I was at a big vaccine site, public site, and I saw a woman um, and I think I could tell just because I could, the, 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 
the um, stands were very close to each other, um, that this was her first vaccine. And, you know, I was already getting a booster and she was crying and the vaccinator was like unbelievably compassionate and like saying, you're doing the right thing. You're it's good for your family, but that there are people out there who legitimately are terrified and they don't understand. And so that person might need to be dealt with a little bit differently than the person who's like, this is a conspiracy and has really gone deep down the rabbit hole. So to me, you know, the sort of approach that I take to that problem is really trying to understand the nature of the reluctance or the resistance and targeting strategies to that. But it's very, it's hard. I mean, like it is a, it is a massive public, I think that's a public health problem, like the misinformation about vaccines. So, yeah. I imagine approaching to something like uh, prevention when, well, I don't need it. I don't, I feel fine versus I feel miserable might be more, they might be more willing to take a treatment once they oh, feel the effect. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I definitely think that that is, you know, I think that's, but I think getting the message out too about how you, if you can avoid getting infected, you want to avoid getting infected. And I think, you know, the long COVID and post viral syndrome uh, thing right now is, you know, an interesting discussion. And I mean, it's hard because I think we're still learning. Right. I, and that was one of the challenges you know, I mean, I was fully vaccinated, but I got COVID. And, you know, I think there are people like, well, you got vaccinated. But I'm like, you know what? I was sick as a dog. But if I hadn't been vaccinated, how sick would I have actually been? Right. And so it's helping people understand, you know, in the beginning, the messaging was like, if you get this, you're done, no worries. But we all kind of knew that that wasn't right. And so figuring out how the messaging should go so that people aren't confused um, is is critical. But that's a really interesting point. So yeah, I don't think we have a lot of vaccines that actually prevent disease. No. I don't think the public was well educated on that. No, so, no. Yeah. Going back to one thing you mentioned just a yeah. little bit earlier, if we can, you yeah, mentioned sure. about outpatient prescribing, yes. which is notoriously <laughs> difficult to track. Does Utah have a, a means of keeping track of that? Yeah. So I think that it is, and I'm not sure about sort of the state level, but I, from what I understand and cause I'm newer to the state, but in general, in my work in outpatient stewardship, that date getting access to prescribing data is tricky. It's really hard. And so health systems may have it, but actually like getting access to it, then analyzing it and making it useful. Um, one of the most clear cut, ways we know how to improve outpatient antibiotic prescribing is to give uh, prescribers a report card that has their rate of inappropriate prescribing compared to their peers and their practice and in the state or their whole network, right? And we know that that improves prescribing, but getting those data, getting them in a timely fashion, making sure that the reports are, you know, designed in a way that people are going to read them is really hard. So I would say that is one of those big areas is like improving data access. Um, and really, I like the point that you're making. And I think, again, Dr. Langford's work in Ontario, he's done some really cool stuff because Public Health Ontario has data for everything. Yeah. And so you can like do these massive studies and then do data feedback um, at like a, a province level. Whereas for us, it's like 
this health system's doing it. Maybe, but then you got the urgent care clinics who are owned by a for-profit company who are like, I'm giving out antibiotics like candy because the patients want it. Right. And then you're at the university clinic and the patient's like, well, you don't want to give me antibiotics. I'm just going to go down the street. Right. So I think this is an issue that is very challenging. So, yeah. Well, great. Well, we're interested to see where your research. Yes. Yeah. We'll definitely have to have you on a a full show. Yes. I would love that. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for part two of the Nebraska Antimicrobial Stewardship Summit conference interviews. We hope you enjoyed these interviews and have an opportunity to go search up the Nebraska ASAP YouTube channel to view some of the sessions. You can also visit the Nebraska ASAP website at asap.nebraskamed.com for all of the antimicrobial stewardship resources. If you're in Nebraska, or even outside of Nebraska. I hope we can see you at next year's Antimicrobial Stewardship Summit so you can join in on these conversations live. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at dirty underscore drinks on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes. We would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.